Hi, Nicole. Hey there, Renee. Are you ready for this? Not really, but let's do it. <laughs> we don't have a title for this one because I, I, I imagine it's going to emerge as we talk. But today, Nicole, I was I went on a date with my daughter, uh, who is BFFs with your son. We went to go get a birthday present for him. And I saw one of my neighbors, who is black, and I had been thinking about him. So I rolled down the window. And we have a really diverse neighborhood, I should say that. And um, so I rolled down the window because I'd missed seeing him. And I said, hey, how are you doing? And he looked at me and he said, I'm all right, but I got to tell you, a few weeks ago, I cracked. What do you think he was thinking, talking about? I knew exactly. He didn't have to explain himself. Well, let's see. This is going to be airing. We don't exactly know when, but we're smack dab at the end of August. What's today's date? The 29th. Today is August 29th. This might air later, but we are about a week post uh, another shooting. And there was another one yesterday. It was Jacob. Of a black man. Um, is Jacob Blake. And we're the tail end of the summer of COVID and Black Lives Matter movement in America. So, I mean, I can make a lot of assumptions about what he means by cracking. Mm-hmm. And if I knew, I looked at him and he looked at me and we just kind of nodded. And, and I said, listen. I, and he's still social distancing because he's like, and I had nobody to talk to. And I said, we got a couch outside. You come talk to us when when you can. And and he just looked at me. And, and we've always had a good relationship like this, even though we don't see each other that often. But we're able to talk about things in public, in open, in safety of knowing that we understand something mm-hmm. that so many people are contentious about. And I say, we right now are living through a triple pandemic. When I'm not being diplomatic, I call it a triple pandemic of COVID-19 racism and Trumpism. But when I am at work and I don't know my audience, instead of Trumpism, I say, Uh, polemics. And polemics is the idea of having vastly different ideologies and and having contention between people of of opposing ideologies. And so polemic is a good word. It's a a good word. It is a good word. Uh, Nicole and I, by this point, you know that we are both believers. Uh, We are believers in Jesus. And I think it's important today to talk about uh, our narrative of faith, not the entire one, but a recent one. And and I'll begin uh, November something, election night, 2016. <laughs> I knew going into the election that Trump was not my man. Now, I'm not saying that his opponent was my woman. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that I knew with all of my heart that I could not put pencil to paper and, and vote for Donald Trump based on what I believed was questionable character and what I believe was a song and dance. And so, and I, at that point, I also believed that Hillary Clinton was going to win because that's what most of the polls evinced. 
or at least had concluded or at least portended. And we all know that they were dead wrong. Well, well I mean, not she actually did win she the, won the she, popular she vote. She did win the popular <laughs> vote by all. And I will yell at all of you right now who refrained to vote because, man, it's because of you that he won. Just kidding. But not really. I'm not actually kidding. And so this <laughs> this year, you freaking better vote, okay? If you don't like Donald Trump in the presidency, vote for the vote for Biden and Kamala Harris. Why? Because your vote matters. Your vote matters. Or, or don't don't vote for anybody. I don't believe that. I believe you should. Well, vote. that's anyway. maybe a conversation. Well, you'll hear we'll my it, you'll yes. hear my okay. story when we I, get to I, it. I, Nicole, and I <laughs> do not share the same belief. I believe we must vote. Anyway, let me go back to. So the night before, I just had. I was full of confidence. Just confidence, like the world is going to be okay if Hillary Clinton wins. So I put up a Bitmoji, which is like a cartoon version of myself on Instagram, not on Facebook because Facebook is dangerous, but Instagram is my safe place. And so I put the bitmoji of me, you know, watching a movie and eating popcorn, that one. <laughs> and it was like, hey guys, it's all right. The world is not going to stop spinning if Hillary Clinton wins. And I was really talking to my Christian audience, my Christian audience, because I have such a large <laughs> Christian audience. And and I was like, all right, I, I, I feel like I made my peace with that. And I woke up, actually, I went to bed that night with the Donald Trump presidency. And I woke up and my world had flipped upside down. And in the greatest act of irony, and I don't know whose act it was, my world came crashing down. And I didn't know why. I didn't know why I was experiencing this rift within me. And this, it was, it was tumultuous. And I, and it took a while for me to uh, deconstruct it. Mm -hmm. And I am still in the process of reconstructing what happened. And I'm going to pause there and I can go into all of that, but I want to give Nicole an opportunity to talk about where she, what happened with her, at least the beginning of the story. And mm -hmm. then we can pick up from there if you're lucky. <laughs> if we have time. Um, let's see. Well, I want to preface to you, I feel like, by saying that uh, I am a political science major. I grew up really being somewhat even enamored with the Republic Democracy of America. I remember learning about in school ratification and referendums, and I remember thinking, "This we we live in the greatest country in the world. We we have so much power as a people. The the idea of voting and choosing a representative to me was this kind of really powerful but romantic idea. And I held on to that and I I became a political science major. I love, loved the political process and I specifically love the American process. And uh, I followed politics so closely through somewhat through high school, but definitely in college, definitely post-college into my marriage. And it was a real part of my identity. And like so many things happen over time, God shifted my focus and shifted my priorities to other things. And I I don't use this phrase like lightly. I really believe, and this isn't a condemnation for people who follow politics, but I, I over time became more kingdom-minded and less politically-minded. And I think it's really, really difficult in this country to be a Christian and primarily be kingdom-minded 
it's really hard. It's a lot easier to be an American Christian and swing a little bit more towards politics. Sure. Uh, it's just the structure. It's the nature of the beast, as it were. And and so I, I don't say that as a condemnation. I say that really empathetically. I understand how that comes to pass. And I understand how American Christians uh, latch on to or identify with a political leader. I actually think that's just part of human nature. That's not even necessarily American um, nature. That's just part of human nature. So I say all that to say that, you know, I had, I've, I've swung pretty far in my political worldview. And so when Trump was being, uh, when Trump was running in 2016 against Hillary, I was really doing what I do really well, which I've really recently discovered I do really well, is I was practicing a, a really great um, amount of dis disassociation. Like I just really didn't want to deal with it. I didn't want to engage it. I really did not want to have the conversations. I understood I had an alarm bell going off that I continued to quiet specifically regarding Donald Trump. And this, none of this is to bash Donald Trump. This is mine and Renee's story of where we believe God has brought us and what God communicated to us. This isn't like a, uh, you know, what's that fair game when you throw the dunk tank? Yes. This is not a dunk tank. Um, this is just our stories and for what it's worth. And um, so... I prayed through who I was supposed to vote for, like I always do. And I'll say I've always been faithful to vote. It's something that I truly carry as a responsibility. I've said so many times, I could have been born in any country, in any time period, anywhere in the world, but I was born in this America, in modern America, as a minority woman. And I believe that because of that, I have a responsibility to vote, especially when I think of brothers and sisters in other countries who are given no such choice. So I am compelled to go to the polls every time. And I did so. And this time in 2016, I just, I really did not feel that I could morally vote for either candidate. And I didn't, um, which <laughs> I will say now gives me a lot of peace. And I'm actually really thankful that that's where I ended up. But you know, that's where I ended up. I, I voted for everything else at that time, just not a president. So maybe like a week or two after the election, maybe not even because you were there, Renee, you would partly remember. I had the opportunity to speak for a group of moms locally, Christian moms at a really big mega church in the Valley where we live in Phoenix. And, um, I was giving a talk about like my spiritual, like some overcoming situation of chronic illness, which will be a podcast episode for another time. But for whatever reason, Holy Spirit, while I was on the stage sharing, I felt very compelled to say that I was, I am biracial. And it didn't really have anything to do with what I was talking about, but I said it. I said I have a black father and a white mother, and I, you know, grew up between these kind of two worlds. And then that's basically all I said. And I kept giving my talk. After the time, one of the women, one of the mothers comes up to me and I will call her Sarah. She um, is a white woman and she asked if she could talk with me. And I remember immediately just feeling how scared she was 
and she began to cry and she began to express it. She's married to a black man and she has four uh, biracial children, two of whom are sons. And she was so terrified at Donald Trump's election. And I just want to say too, this is a woman who was at a very conservative Bible church in a very conservative city who is probably, if I had to guess, a, rep- a, a registered Demo- a registered Republican. I don't know that for sure, but I can tell you all the other things for sure are true. And she was terrified. And I remember feeling, because I was disassociating so much, thinking, I don't quite get what's happening right now. I couldn't connect. I didn't fully understand her fear. And I prayed with her and Renee and I both prayed with her and I encouraged her as best I could, but I didn't really, I couldn't really be emotionally where she was at because I wasn't. And in some ways I feel ashamed for that or convicted about that because I was so detached from what was actually happening. But in other ways, I mean, I know that that was the process that God had to take me through he had to take me through 2016, 2017, 2018, 2019. <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of things happened between then and, and now. Um, a lot of other things like – and a lot of other shootings like Philandro Castro, which marked me, and a lot of other um, – Sandra – a lot of things happened. Sandra, Sandra Bland. B and Philando mm-hmm. Castile, right? Yeah. yeah. What did I say? I don't know. Castro. Oh, Castro. No, Castile. And so – a lot of things have happened between now and then, but now I sit on the other side and I can look back and I can understand that palpable fear that this mother and woman and wife had for her black husband and for her brown-skinned boys who look black, who they're mixed. I mean, they are black. And I can relate to – and I don't feel scared, I should say. But I can relate to that anxiety and the trauma feeling of not knowing and the trauma of it just keeps happening in the streets. And so that's my that was part of my process and that's partly where I am now. Yeah. It's interesting because I remember hearing her and I it, it wasn't as obvious back then. And it feels like it was prophetic for her mm-hmm. to have felt what she did. Mm-hmm. But I want to pause because I know that there are people here who are not Christians and who might need a little bit more context. And so, you know, I'll give you a, a, an anecdote because that's those are what I like. When I was in college, I started college in 1995 uh, at Biola University. It was a Christian university. Um I, one of my favorite professors, he was my communications professor. His first name was Sheldon Hill. Now, if you're out there, Sheldon Hill, what's up? That's a good name. I know. And and he was one of the only, if not the only, black professors at Biola. And we, it, Bill Clinton was about ready to have an election um, against Dole at that time. And and I had just become a believer. I was a baby, baby a believer. Um and and I had chosen in high school because I had this amazing uh, government teacher, uh, Mr. S- Dr. Scott, and I had chosen to be a Republican based on the fiscal conservatism and based on a more laissez-faire. I didn't like the government meddling in. And so I made this decision independent of any sort of uh, faith perspective, 
because I had almost, I had no faith upbringing. I had a very confused faith upbringing. So it had to just to do with my, my, my value of independence that I didn't want the government telling me what to do. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so then I went, when I went to Biola, it turned out it was, you know, it was, it was good for me to be Republican because when Professor Hill told me that he was voting for Clinton, I looked at him and I said, but you're a Christian. <laughs> yes. Because it was my assumption that that Christianity equated to republicanism. Mm-hmm. And so I say that to, to give you some context. And then when Nicole says kingdom-minded, I know some people are like, what does that mean? What does that mean to be kingdom-minded? I mean, when Jesus talked about the kingdom is at hand, he's talking about the kingdom to come, his kingdom, where he's in rule and reign, which really is just God's will, God having his way. Like when a lot of people do know the Lord's Prayer, when we pray, um, Lord, have your way, your way, not ours, your will, not our way, Lord, have your way. We're really talking about, or kingdom come, thy will be done. That's the word. Those are the words I'm looking for. Um, We're really talking about his kingdom having his way here on earth. What is good in heaven coming here and being so on earth. So when we pray that, we're praying for God to have his way. Yeah. So when I talk about kingdom, I'm talking about having a mind of Christ and wanting to do what he wants me to do, not necessarily what culture or my na- my nation, my nationality or any other outside influence wants me to quote unquote do. Yeah. So ultimately, our trust goes into understanding that God has orchestrated something that we may not understand or even like or even agree with, but that in in the Bible, it does say that that God does establish leaders. I I also happen to think that leaders do reflect the people uh, 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 that that they're leading, kind of like uh, there's King Saul in the Bible, but I don't want to, that's a total rabbit hole. And email me if you want to hear my thoughts on that. So, but going back to to this and picking up after 2016 and just kind of this breakdown that was happening with me that I didn't realize what what many of you may remember, uh, but many of you may not, is how much the evangelical community was in support of Trump. And, you know, Nicole and I have, um, we are, we embrace a, a, an aspect of Christianity that is very biblical, but that is not received by all denominations. And that is that we have a very interactive relationship with God or a prophetic relationship with God where we, we seek out his will and we really believe that we can, we can hear from him. And, and there, so we have a large community of people who are open to that and who operate in that. And many, many, many of those people were certain, certain that Trump was God's anointed. And those were the exact words that I had heard, and it did not sit well with me at all. And so when Trump was elected, and I and I was like, God's anointed this man who, to me, evinced a lot of sexist behaviors in his talk about women, racist behaviors in his talk and his his 
behaviors with immigration and the wall and all of these things. If it's not racist, at least xenophobic. Um, and then so many, not even microaggressions, just straight up aggressions toward people with disabilities. Just And then just his treatment of other people, always having a moniker, you know, uh, for somebody he called he calls everybody like Sleepy Jeb, I think. And it was interesting. Sleepy Joe? Sleepy Joe. Joe Sleepy Biden. Joe. Yeah, but yeah. he called Jeb Bush something. Oh, yeah. Anyway, he had a moniker like Little little Marco. Right, right. But what was fascinating, the research that came out was any time – like if a, a candidate was doing well in the primaries. This was in 16. Um, and, and Trump would put a moniker on mm -hmm. them, within a week they would be out of the election. That's fascinating. Like somehow people just glommed on to whatever identity he foisted upon them. I gotta look that up. Isn't that a fascinating? Anyway, so I was having a hard time figuring out how I could be part of this faith community that I felt had, was misaligned in, in their thinking. So anyway, fast forward. At work, we did this social cohesion dialogue. And the first author they brought in was Dr. Carol Anderson, who is a black professor out of Emory University. And we were reading the book, White Rage. And Carol Anderson came to my university and it was a, an evening talk. And I had already read this book. And the premise of the book essentially is that starting from the Civil War and her afterward, maybe it was Maybe it was a year later. It doesn't matter about the timeline. But but ultimately, the book, the premise was that anytime there's black forward mo momentum or progress within the United States, ultimately, there's an answer of white rage backlash to then kind of unfurl that black forward momentum. Right. Which is evidenced throughout history. Yeah. And, and we know like the the majority of confederate statues throughout the country by the yes. way not just in the south were mainly erected in the 1950s and 1960s as a direct backlash and reaction to the civil rights movement at the time yes don't don't let any black folks make too much progress we will continue to put you in your place and show you where you really belong and it continues now correct and so so Trump, according to Anderson's research or afterward, um, is the is the white rage response right. to Obama. Right. And anyway, so now we're in the same room together. I'm 10 feet away from her and she's talking about not letting, not, don't allow this rage to be diffused. We have to pay attention to it and we have to do something about it. Mm -hmm. And as she's talking about this, I begin to have what I consider an amygdala hijack. My blood pressure goes up. I can't breathe. I'm, I'm having a panic attack and I don't know why. And I, I look around the room and of course I'm like, hold it together because you're technically still at work. And and I thought about her and I prayed. I was like, God, why? Why, why am I feeling this? And immediately I thought, what's been propping up American politics, which is white supremacy and patriarchy, mm -hmm. in my estimation, has also been holding up the American church. And there it is. And I was devastated. Mm -hmm. And I, I didn't know what to do with that. Like, what? Why, how is this possible? But then I thought about my own trajectory as a brown woman 
in the church and how much Nicole and I have gotten pushback uh, in our own women's ministry. We didn't have, we don't have men on the board, and this has been a problem for many ministries that we've tried to engage with, even though we're a women's ministry. <laughs> and just, and we do love men. Yeah, big time. But they and I love white men. They don't have to sit on our board. Right? <laughs> oh, I, I could do a lot with that, but I'm not going to. And so anyway, I um so I didn't understand this. You have to understand a lot of times I, I feel something or I, I I realize something and I just I haven't quite gotten it. And so anyway, then George Floyd happens. Now we're about two, three, four late years later and the president of the United States of America to this day August 29th 2020 has not said in my to my knowledge and you can correct me Nicole has not said a word I will if I need to has not said a word about racial reconciliation oh that's true Renee that is ding 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 correct he's not addressed publicly the world's in the history of the world the largest civil rights movement in the history of the world he has not actually publicly addressed it but he has talked about being the president of law and order that's right and he has talked about while using footage from his own presidency he has talked about what will happen in biden's america <laughs> using footage from that's his own presidency lots of projection there also for law and order. Yes, I'm going to ask you, what does that mean? Well, it's code for black people stay in your place. If you haven't watched the documentary 13th and you're at all interested in this idea, I encourage you to watch it and to actually understand the history of the term law and order and from its first inception with Nixon through subsequent presidents, both Democratic and Republican, I should add, um, and how it's been used as coded language to speak to those who don't like black people. Correct. Or brown people. Correct. Correct. And the last two weeks I watched the DNC and I watched the RNC because I do feel like it's part of my my job, like my actual career to, to see both sides of what's happening politically. And I just think that that's my social responsibility and my responsibility as a critical thinking person, woman. And um, you can say person. I can say person, but I prefer to say woman. <laughs> and so, um, and in watching the RNC, there were a lot of people who stood up who talked about having safe neighborhoods, ensuring that neighborhoods stayed safe, that under Biden's America, our neighborhoods would not stay safe because these protests, these riots would continue to happen. Mm-hmm. I didn't. I didn't watch either. Um, I watched the highlights on the Daily Show, and you with, also watched my text with Trevor Noah. That came in. Um, that's how I like to do. And I also <laughs> read Renee's text messages. And I'm, I'm not disassociating this. I actually never, ever, for as much as I ever really did love politics, I never really watched. I don't know why I never really watched either. It's just not my cup of tea. I would always just watch the highlights on the news, which is fine. I, I get the good stuff and the bad stuff that way. But I just was sitting there thinking like, really? Is this actually happening right before my very eyes? This cloaked white, this white supremacy that is being championed for the sake of our safety. 
because we want to go back to the days of Eisenhower. He he said, I'm the president, Republican Party, or the, the party of Lincoln, the party of Eisenhower. And I was like, so that's where you want to go. You want to go back well, to I, this this I, white I also fence. think it's a it's a, it's effective because well fear is really effective. Fear is so effective. And when we really think back to the election or the time period leading up to 2016's election, people were scared. There's always a fear that undercurrent in American culture. And at that time before Trump's election, it was terrorism. It was Middle Eastern, radical Islamists. It was let's keep everyone out. And we pitted ourselves. Trump pitted the United States as this, you know, safe beacon. We would not engage in those things. We would keep people out um, under his presidency if he were elected. And a lot of people were scared. And he used that language really well. And he's continued to use a fear-based rhetoric that, I mean, listen, it's effective. It does the job. I mean, it does what people don't want to People are really, white Americans are really, really uncomfortable right now. They are so very uncomfortable with the protests. They're very uncomfortable with any kind of writing, obviously. Some, some white Americans. A lot. Yes. A majority. Well, I don't even know if I would say a majority, but a lot of white Americans. A lot of people that I personally am interacting with are very uncomfortable. And they just want it to end. They want it to be done. They keep asking when can this be over? What are the solutions? How do we just move forward? How do we just hold hands and have peace? Isn't that what Martin Luther King Jr. was talking about? I mean, was he? Because also people forget very easily what the civil rights movement actually looked like and what that resistance actually looked like. And those those black people that that time were breaking all kinds of laws because it was the only way that they could resist. And so I actually welcome the discomfort. I am glad for the agitation of white Americans. I think that is one of the best ways forward. But we can't we can't be swept up in the fear rhetoric and then say we're going to partner with that fear because that will always inhibit progress. If we really are wanting change and we really want to see uh, equity, fear is certainly not the path forward. Mm -hmm. So. I think for me, that's a, a real mayday, mayday call when I hear any kind of fear-based political rhetoric come from either side. I, I don't want anything to do with that. Um, but I do, you know, I want solutions. I don't want, um, I don't want the pain and the heartache that, can, that has been happening in the streets. But I also know that it will not stop um, until real justice is made known. 100%. And you know, a lot of people have a hard time understanding what equity is and, and why this is happening. And I've heard so often lately from people of whiteness saying, well, you know, if they just worked harder, mm -hmm. if they didn't want handouts. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, whoa, this is very, very dangerous language that you're using. Mm -hmm. And because people see our country as being one of equality. And equality is when everybody is treated the same. But equity is when everybody has access to the same thing. They are not the same. 
And so have we talked about this already? We haven't. Okay. But I use the word equity. And yeah, so you're you giving did. a definition. I know. So and I it. think uh, <laughs> because so many people have issues with this and I and I want to make it clear that, you know, even Martin Luther King Jr., he, he used the bootstraps analogy. You cannot tell everybody to pull themselves up by their bootstraps if not everybody has boots. Mm-hmm. And right now in this country, because of decades and decades and centuries of unfair policies, policies enacted to the exclusion of black people specifically and in broader context, people of color, there has not been boots distributed to all Americans. And so when you say, well, they just need to get a job or they just need to do that, you have to be careful because not all of them have access even with childcare, right? Uh, just the idea of getting, paying for childcare mm-hmm. is sometimes, it's cheaper not to work than to pay for childcare. Right. And, and it is very problematic. Anyway, now, is that to say that those of us with boots, whether whatever our color is, we don't pull ourselves up? Absolutely. We've seen that time and time again with people of color, with people of diverse genders, all of those sorts of things. But, I do not want to hear from anybody, especially the parade of black people at the RNC who were, in my opinion, tokenized, that that somehow their experience is the black experience. And and, and neither side is the – the black experience Well, I was talking with some friends that I got into a conversation with that I also shared with Renee, which wasn't, wasn't my favorite conversation. It was a hard conversation, and I was talking with a group of white friends. Um, I was one of only two women of color in the conversation, and no one said the term black on black crime outright, but it was implied by a phrase like inner city Chicago something something. And um, this person, who I loved very much, I want to say, was you know kind of looking for, well, you know, what about the stories when you hear of like you know, the black kid from the South side of Chicago who, you know, he like got out and he's doing this and that. And, and I just kind of looked at her and I was like, don't you, you're, you're literally giving the exception story. Those stories are the exception. And, and a lot of white people hold onto those stories and prop those stories up and they tokenize those individuals and they say, well, this person did it. And I looked at her and I said, why should that be the exception? Why should one black kid making it out of the hood and going to college be the exception? Mm-hmm. That is not my America. I do not. I reject that America. Yeah. Well, and 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 to put the expectation on all others based on those stories, right? I think is problematic. Absolutely. Now, do I want it to happen? Do I want the exception stories to become the the norm? I do, mm-hmm. but do I think it can happen with the current state of affairs in the United States? No. And anti racism, anti racism, and if you want to learn more about that, look up Kendi K E N D I and his book Stamped from the Beginning and also How to Be an Anti Racist, both published you know in the last few years. We'll talk about that anti-racism is the act of enacting policies that go specifically against racism. And it gets nuanced. And I don't love the fact that an 
the, the definition of anti-racism includes racism. <laughs> I, I, this is problematic. But um, the point here is that it is so much more nuanced than, than Nicole and I can get into right now. But um, but but the point is, I believe that the people in 2016 who heard that Trump was God's anointed were actually telling the truth. Yeah. And the reason I believe that is because I believe under no other circumstances could the events that have unfolded during the summer of 2020 with the, in my opinion, mishandling of COVID-19 or the unhandling or the, the, the debacle that was, you know, I mean, we are in Phoenix, Arizona, and it got real bad here in June and July. One of our closest friends got, got it, his entire family. Many of his family members were in the hospital for weeks at near the end of their lives. I have family members who were hit very hard. Why were we hit so hard in Phoenix in June and July? Oh, because somebody got on national news and said that heat kills it. And we happen to have <laughs> the hottest summer on record. So people in Arizona were like, woo. We're good to go. Oh, also chlorine kills it. We have yes. the highest number of swimming pools That's per right. capita. So if we just stayed outside in the 110 right? in the pool, we're good to go. Right? And so if you fly over Phoenix, look out your window <laughs> because you will see just dots of blue. And those are all of our pools. And so it doesn't smell like chlorine here though. Um, but anyhow, actually what the water does taste like, it tastes like dirt and chlorine. Yeah, um, I don't drink the yeah, don't ever water. drink the water don't in ever Phoenix. Drink the if you go water. to, don't ever drink the desert water. And if you have to, maybe your finances are limited. I respect that. Get a lemon. Put squeeze some lemon in that water. Okay. Otherwise, I told you so. And so, anyway, where was I going? Um, oh, COVID, COVID hit us. Yes. So that's what happened in Phoenix because we were believing a narrative that had been spun by the same person who just took credit for demolishing ISIS and bringing troops home. When last night, I had a 20-year career veteran over at my house, a white man, and he looked at me and he said, listen, do not under any circumstances listen to the tales that have been spun yeah. in a three-hour speech in which my dad said, why is he talking for so long <laughs> about Trump's RNC speech? When is he going to stop? I will never and, not love an AG. Oh, he was so energy, great. Uh, I immediately <laughs> took to Instagram to quote my dad. Uh, I, anyway, so the narrative, but, but my, my veteran friend, his name is Sean, um, said in 2011, he was going to be sent on his second tour in the Middle East. And it was stopped by who? Who was our commander in chief? By Obama. Mm -hmm. But he doesn't get credit. Listen, right. you got to give credit where credit is due. And you can't take credit where you, where you don't have credit. So what I'm saying is this, you got to do your homework. You got to figure out what tales have been spun by either side. And you got to call them out for what they are. But why? Okay, yeah. So this is why I truly believe that this summer happened by no mistake. But I believe that we need leadership that is going to help us. And I'm not talking about the president and the vice president of the United States, as excited as I am that there is a half black and half Indian woman <laughs> that is poised to be the potential 
next vice president of the United States. I am really excited about that representation. But they are not the answers to our solutions in the United States. We are the answers to the solution in the United States. And we have to learn to be able to think critically. We have to learn to be able to see beyond our polemics. We have to learn to see beyond our our politics and see beyond the state of what we think our God wants. And we have to recognize that there are people right now who are being killed on the streets who, as Nicole put it so eloquently, either black people are lying about the state of injustice or they're telling the truth. Or they're crazy. Or they're crazy. They're collectively crazy. Right? They're lying yeah. or they're telling the truth. Right. right? And, and we get to make a decision about how we're going to treat them and we get to make a decision on the local and national and international level. And what are we going to do with the time that has been given to us? Is that a rhetorical question? Or no, we've got to make a decision about what we're going to do. Yeah. No. I mean, I, I, I'm still in the process of figuring out what I'm going to do. What that specifically means for me, I think every person who feels engaged in this fight for racial justice and reconciliation should and needs to figure out for themselves individually because it's also not going to look the same for everybody. And one thing that Jonathan and my husband and I have talked a lot about in the last few months is I definitely don't expect everyone to carry the same passion or burden that I carry for this. And also I'm not an expert. I'm still figuring out and learning as we go and trying to read books and trying to bring in and take in information and sift through my own biases and my own prejudices. But, and I don't, I just don't expect everybody to feel the same way I do and that's okay. But I absolutely have a, a bare minimum expectation if you uh, love people in any way, whatever that looks like for you, whatever your faith is even, that you engage in some way, in some manner in this. And like we said in the beginning, I'm not – I definitely, you know, I don't ever want to go around like knocking presidents or knocking Trump specifically. That's not my personal agenda. I have a lot of my own issues with his presidency and Renee alluded to a lot of them. But I want to see – I don't know. I want to see Americans do the right thing. Mm-hmm. This time around, whatever that looks like, that's my hope. I want I want to see us do the right thing. And I think a lot of us instinctively know what that is, and a lot of it is beginning. It's listening and beginning and starting and letting yourself be uncomfortable, and that's okay too. That's right. And I think I want to be clear, unless I am – please hold me accountable if I did otherwise, but I never once – criticized uh, Trump's, I never had, there was no ad hominem. No, not at all. I'm, listen, I I fully support everything you said. I feel the same. Where I will not (laughs) attack the man directly, but I will criticize his behaviors. Yes. Some of his policies, some of his inactions, Mm -hmm. some of his uh, negligence. I will do that. Why? Because it is my civil duty. And you know what? A hundred years ago this week, women were given the right to vote. Right. And they fought and they protested 
and Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady, Stanton Cady, mm-hmm. they they did the work. So so we can sit here and have a podcast and and, correct. and bitch a little bit. It's a okay. A little bit. I don't mind. <laughs> but so we could we could do as we have a civil duty to say, listen, you you vote who you need to vote for. But and you can criticize, but listen, we don't criticize people. We criticize behaviors. This is what I say yeah. to my children. Or ideas, right? Is that the other we, phrase? Yes, we criticize, criticize ideas, ideas. We criticize behaviors, but we don't. We don't. We don't speak down to people. And 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 I want everybody to hear me and go back and listen to this if you have the patience. <laughs> I, I'm criticizing the behavior. I'm criticizing the policy. I'm criticizing the inaction. I'm criticizing the danger. And I'm also saying I am thankful that Donald J. Trump was our president (laughs) because I think it's all happening and I intend to see the fight through to bring racial justice. I'm proud of you for saying that one out loud. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. (laughs) My my Fitbit, (laughs) yep, my heart Heart rate rate went went up real (laughs) high. So don't call 911 though, Fitbit, I'm all right. So um, anyway, that's where we stand. That's where I stand. And I I know that, and what I like about this is Nicole and I don't see eye to eye. I am more liberal politically um, (laughs) to the chagrin of so many family members who have unfollowed me on on Oh, it's okay. My family members literally don't ask me where I stand on things. They just assume all the time to know. They don't even, and, and to be truth be told, most of my family members probably assume that I'm much more liberal than I actually am. Yeah. You know what? You're not going to take the time to talk to me about it. You can think whatever you want. Yeah. And I think, I don't know what I am. I think I'm in, in a weird phase where I'm not a liberal by any means. I mean, of course, to some people, I'm super liberal. I'm like a Marxist. I, I just got a <laughs> private message condemning me for being a Marxist. Oh, I'm getting lots of You're doing the work. When I'm that happens, you're doing the work. Jonathan so, was called a socialist uh, well, you know, not so long ago. Well, there you go. <laughs> And so, you know, these are lots of private messages. I appreciate all of those people. I haven't responded to you and I will not respond to you, um, but I received <laughs> your private messages. Received and deleted. Yeah. <laughs> yep. I hope you're proud of yourself. And so in any case, here we are and we see things differently and I think that's a beautiful thing. And you know what? I'm still working things out. And and I left the Republican Party and I'm not a Democrat. I'm I'm somewhere in limbo. I'm in this, this liminal space. And I'm comfortable here right now. But what I want to measure is not which side I'm going to belong to, but what I'm going to do with the time that has been given to me. I wanted to read this little thing if I can even find it fast enough. I don't know. I don't know if anybody follows and campaign, but I do, and they're amazing. Um, I think they speak my they speak my language. Here's one: No one should mistake a Christian for a generic Republican or a generic Democrat. Our commitment to the, the compassion and conviction of the gospel should clearly distinguish us from those who disregard racial justice or the unborn, as an example. Those two those two ideas. I think for me. The gospel trumps either, and I'm I'm willing to do whatever God tells me to do, wherever that lands me. And sometimes that's landed me f- voting for Democratic candidates, and sometimes that's landed me voting for Republicans, and sometimes it's landed me voting for neither. Sure, and that's okay. I'm 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 okay with that. 
I think that I'm in a similar kind of limbo in the sense of just I don't want to place too much – I don't want to swing back and place too much emphasis back in the political realm, but I don't want to ever swing to the other side where I was so disassociated and disconnected from it. Um, I do believe my responsibility is to stay engaged and to be mindful and to be vigilant. And in that, that that feels good. Yeah, same. And I want to say two things. Re- remember that sometimes nationalism can can be a uh, a kinder word for racism. Right. And just because a particular party pushes pro-life agendas doesn't mean that they uphold pro-life agendas. And I am vociferously not in favor of abortion. Um, but to be pro-life means that once children exit the womb, there's got to be a system in place to take care of them. And the, and and I just so so many people private message me about how can I how can I not be a Republican because not being a Republican makes me pro-life. No. No. It doesn't. Yeah. I mean that's a f- full other can of worms. Yeah, it's a what's but, it called? But yes. Yeah. Yes, it that. is a full other can of worms. But I want to leave this with those two thoughts that don't think that just belong because you belong or somebody else belongs to a certain camp that they uphold the values that that camp espouses. Look at the behaviors. Yeah, that's good. And on that same idea, we don't have to agree 100% fully with any one set of tenets or ideas. We don't even have to agree with what's on the Black Lives Matter website. It's true. Because which I don't. I don't. I happen to believe in the nuclear family personally, but I absolutely also simultaneously believe that black lives matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because they do. That's right. And and I'm still sorting everything out, but because I I believe everybody everybody is welcome to the table. And with that I think we're done here. <laughs> you know, I don't know. I told you it was going to be meandering. I, I warned you. <laughs> and I don't. I still don't know what this episode is going to be called, if we even release it. And it is longer. Um, Maybe we'll let Evan name this episode. We will let Evan our, name Evan's it. our fancy producer. I'm yeah. sure we've mentioned him now on a re-recording. But, you know, in any case, I wish you well. Whatever, Whoever you are, I want to send my love to you, whether you are, are white or black, whether we agree or disagree. I do love you, and and I hope that that is the one thing that people take away from any interaction. I like it. Let's end with that. All right. Okay. Peace. In the Middle East? Everywhere. All the time.